Welcome again to Change Your Mind About You, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we're going to talk about perhaps the most formidable barrier to human progress, a concept I refer to as the Great Deception. To get a better appreciation for how this deception began, let's return to the creation story in Genesis. We learn there that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image and likeness, as it says in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. He created the male form first by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, as it says in Genesis 2, 7. It's helpful to perceive this as a form of CPR. The body, in and of itself, is merely a corpse, whereas a, a living being breathes in and out, inhales and exhales. The capacity to breathe, then, is the life of God within, and that life is spirit. That's so because God is spirit, as it says in John 4.24, and it is spirit that gives life, John 6.63. Thus, when a human being gives CPR to someone who has stopped breathing, that person is seeking to rekindle the capacity to breathe. That is, it is seeking to rekindle the life in that other person. So, man became a living being upon receiving the breath of God, is what Genesis tells us. But God never intended for the man to be alone as it says in Genesis 2, verse 18. So out of the man he formed a woman. He tells us there in verses 21 and 22 of Genesis 2. And, and the man, upon seeing this woman, recognizes his own self in her. It says that in verse 23 of Genesis 2. So the two male and female, are in essence one. Thus, the next two verses emphasize the true nature of both God and human beings. Verses 24 and 25 make this point clear. It says there, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. As we stated earlier, humanity, as male and female, is the image and likeness of God. This statement above, a man leaves his father and mother, is revealing. And what it is revealing is that God who created humanity male and female in his own image, is a father-mother, not just a father. Thus, there exists what we call the divine masculine and the divine feminine aspects of the Godhead. The two are joined together as one. 
Thus, the human-male-female union is created to reflect that divine union. This human-male-female union, in this case, does not refer to physical gender, but rather to the divine masculine and feminine aspects imparted to each of us at creation. Each human being was created with a perfect balance of both the masculine, the divine masculine, and the divine feminine aspects of God. Thus, each created being was gifted with the wholeness characteristic of the divine. Verse 25 of Genesis 2 speaks of Adam and his wife being naked before one another without shame. Both Adam and his wife are whole individual beings which emanated from the same source. The implication here, then, in verse 25 is quite clear and is of direct relation to us on the physical plane. Let me ask you a question. How do two human beings join together to produce one flesh? The answer is through sexual intercourse. In sexual intercourse, two bodies join together to form a larger, more complex, unified whole. So one plus one makes one, so to speak. The joining together of the two wholes produces then a greater whole, or an expanded whole, or an extended whole. One way to understand this is when two individuals join together to form a partnership. The partnership formed and maintained is an enlarged unified whole, isn't it? This joining of the two, then, to make one, is also depicted in tantric yoga by the image of Shiva and Shakti in the Yabhyam configuration. And it is this configuration that provides us with a physical representation of an eternal spiritual principle. Likewise, the male body is a physical representation of the divine masculine, and the female body is a representation of the divine feminine. When the two join together as one, the result is an expanded or an enlarged, undivided whole. So that, my friends, is the intent behind the creation of humanity, male and female. Yet as we have experienced, life has not unfolded in this way for the human race. Due to the events surrounding the fall, human existence has followed a different course. Recall that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Well, when they ate that forbidden fruit, a startling change took place in the way they related to one another. Let's look at that in Genesis 3 and verse 7. After they ate the fruit, what happened? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They began to see, perceive one another 
differently. Instead of being at peace with their nakedness in one another's presence, each of them became ashamed of it. This shamefulness causes them to become afraid of one another and prompts them to hide the most intimate parts of themselves from each other. So the two, formerly united as one, naked and without shame, have now erected barriers between each other, which is what their fig-leaf coverings represent. Thus, male and female have now become separated. And since Adam represents the divine masculine, and Eve the divine feminine, that means that the divine masculine and divine feminine aspects of human beings have been separated from one another as well. But all of this has only occurred in Adam and Eve's perception, not in reality. For God-created reality is unchangeable. So is this distorted perception what I am referring to as the great deception? Well, partially it is, but there's more. Let's continue with the story. As the story progresses in Genesis 3, we find Adam and Eve hiding from God, who is looking for them in the garden. When they finally come together, Adam admits to his fear of God due to his shame associated with his newly discovered nakedness. This exchange prompts God to question Adam about eating from the tree God warned him about. To which Adam replies in Genesis 3 and verse 12, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And upon hearing this response, God then questions Eve, who in turn replies in verse 13, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So what's happening here? Both Adam and Eve here are projecting blame. Adam blames both God and Eve for his own choice, while Eve places the blame for her choice squarely on the serpent. And it is in these choices that the great deception now becomes complete. The first part of this deception, as we said earlier in, uh, from Genesis 3-7, is the distortion of God-created reality through the birth of fear and shame. Both fear and shame breed the distrust that results in separating what was formerly whole into fragments. These separated fragments are then perceived as independent wholes. In other words, substitute selves, each of which are perceived as vulnerable and therefore require protection. What happens in 12 and 13 of Genesis 3 is the use of blame as a way of protecting, quote-unquote, that perceived vulnerability. Blame here is a defensive maneuver. Yet all of this, the fear, shame, distrust, separateness, 
the vulnerable substitute selves that must be defended at all costs, all of it is a substitute reality. It is not as God created it. God's unchangeable creation is characterized by the unity of the divine masculine and the divine feminine symbolized by the creation of humanity, male and female, the two united together as one. Blame here, on the part of both Adam and Eve, is a form of attack. It is a projection of one's incorrect thoughts or decisions onto another in order to absolve your substitute self from the responsibility or guilt. It feels good in the short term, but it has long-term negative consequences because God-created truth cannot be altered. Thus, to blame, that is, attack another, is to attack yourself. Because in God-created reality, there are no separated fragments. All are one. The fact that we, are, we perceive a creation so very different in our world today, in our fallen world, is a demonstration of the power of our minds to distort reality and turn it into something that appears totally different. Now, is there a way for us to reverse these distortions and once again perceive God-created reality as it is? Fortunately, yes. God has provided for us the gift of forgiveness. Practicing true forgiveness in our relationships replaces fear with love, shame with innocence, distrust with trust, separateness with unity, our substitute self with our true self, and defensiveness with defenselessness. Sin is no longer projected onto another to judge them guilty and condemn them to death, as well as ourselves. Rather, forgiveness recognizes that sin is a false idea about every human being. Through forgiveness, any sin that we see with our eyes or hear with our ears is treated as an illusion and then simply let go. This is quite a different way of looking at the world around us than is typical of us. The New Testament calls this different way of looking at the world and of thinking repentance. And repentance is always directed toward the forgiveness of sin. Notice Jesus' instruction given to his disciples following his resurrection. In Luke 24, we're going to read verses 46 through 48. He told them there, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And this forgiveness of sin, while it is preached and taught to others, 
in a personal sense is really not for others. It's for yourself. Notice how A Course in Miracles presents this problem to us and provides us with the solution at the same time. We're going to read from the section, the supplement on prayer, forgiveness, and healing. Section 2, or chapter 2, section 1, and paragraph 4. It says there, speaking of forgiveness, it is, in, quote, it is impossible to forgive another, for it is only your sins you see in him. Isn't that what happened in the book of Genesis? Isn't that what happened when Adam put the blame on God and on Eve for his own irresponsible action? It is impossible to forgive another, for it is only your sins you see in him. You want to see them there and not in you. Adam wanted to see his sin in both God and Eve. That's why forgiveness of another is an illusion. Yet only in someone else can you forgive yourself. For you have called him guilty of your sins. And in him then must your innocence now be found. And do not ever think you can see sin in anyone except yourself. You cannot see, my friends, sin in anyone except yourself. The sin we see in the outside world is our own projection onto the world around us because we don't want that sight of sin in ourselves. This is what Jesus meant when he said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 2, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a direct connection. Ideas do not leave their source Paul taught the very same thing to the church in Rome when he wrote in Romans 2 verse 1, At whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. This teaching, I realize, shocks us to the core. And it shocks us so deeply precisely because we hold such fervent belief in the great deception. It affects the way we perceive our entire world. We make a whole new world out of it. And that, my friends, is why we do not see God's very good creation. We see what has been produced by the great deception 
in our minds. Yet the truth of the matter is clear. As you see others, so you also see yourself. When you look at another, no matter who it is, the way you see them is merely a reflection of how you see yourself. If you see someone as laden with guilt who ought to be ashamed of themselves, then you are condemning yourself as a sinner, worthy of death. Yet if you practice forgiveness by lifting the veil of sin and casting it aside so that you see only the holy, sinless, God-created innocence of another, then you see that same holiness, that same sinlessness, that same innocence in yourself. Ultimately then, those are our only two choices. Do we live under the influence of the great deception? Or do we practice repentance for the forgiveness of sin? Now that you know that you have a choice, and what those choices are, which will you choose? Well, my friends, that's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening to Change Your Mind About You. I hope today's episode was of benefit to all of you. Your comments and questions, of course, are always welcome. Please direct all correspondence by email to kevinmack at changeyourmindaboutyou.com. That's kevinmack at changeyourmindaboutyou.com. Thank you once again for listening today. So until next time, this is your host, Kevin Mack, wishing you all a pleasant day. And do take care now. And be well, my friends. <laughs>